Well, are we good? Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Um, uh, so this morning we will be studying out of Esther chapter 7. So if you guys would like to turn there, uh, then we will uh, get started. Um, for those of you taking notes, I've entitled this message, Such a Time for Defeat. And my points are, <coughs> Esther makes her, makes her request, the adversary revealed, and Haman meets his end. All the points are right there. So we'll pray and then jump on into the message. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Uh, I thank you for the opportunity to still be able to meet uh, online. Um, I pray that uh, each of these youth will be able to get something out of the message, Lord, that they can apply to their lives uh, daily to impact your kingdom, Lord. I pray this all in your name. Amen. So first point, Esther makes her request. Uh, <coughs> Esther 7 verses 1 through 4 say, So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king sa again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then the queen, then Queen Esther s answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. We had, if, had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So remembering everything that we discussed last week, Haman was frustrated, shocked, and humiliated. In Esther 6, 14, it says, While they were yet talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther prepared. So Haman sought his own exaltation. Now we see, we'll see further the consequences of his actions. His pride led to his humiliation, and now his deeds will be brought to light through Esther's request. At the second feast, the king asks the same question that he asked Esther in the court and at the first banquet. What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you up to, what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Now, do you guys remember what Esther had promised in chapter 5? In chapter 5, Esther 5, uh, verse 8, she said, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to a feast, and I will, I will prepare for them tomorrow, and I will do as the king said. Now, what type of quest, request or petition do you think the king was expecting from her, right? Like, we know who the king is by now. We know who most of the empire, like, just how this empire functions. 
it probably surprised him what her request actually was. He was probably expecting something along the lines of, oh, did I skip over? No. Uh, he was probably expecting something more along the lines of, like, a Haman-type request. Money, authority, power. A job for a friend in the palace, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but that's not what she requested. Right? Uh, basically what I just said. Uh, Matthew Henry put it in a similar way. He said, Esther at length surprises the king with a petition, not of wealth, not of honor, or of preferment of some of her friends to some high post which the king expected, but for the preser preservation of herself and her countrymen from destruction and death. We see the difference once again between the earthly and the heavenly. Which perspective, which point of view are you, do you have? Esther clearly shows the heavenly perspective. Right? She stored up her treasures in heaven. She wasn't out to get more power. She wasn't out to get more authority. She wasn't out to get more wealth. The king and Haman had the earthly perspective. She did not. And as, and as Matthew Henry said, the king was surprised when she didn't ask for such things. So we finally get to see this request that Esther has been building up to since the first banquet, since asking the Jewish people to fast for three days so she could get this courage to go ask the king what she needed to ask. So we, like, we, we could see it, right? We got to read ahead. But it's a big point, right? Up to this point, she had fasted, right? Three days, three nights, entered the courts of the king without being called, had the golden scepter held out towards her. Uh, she had asked the king to accompany, uh, and king and Haman to accompany her to two feasts that she had prepared. And all of this, now we get to hear her request. Her petition that herself as well as her people, will be spared from annihilation. I find it really interesting that she adds to it, that she says, if we had been sold into slavery, I would have held my tongue. The Jews have been bought and sold time and time again. So many times throughout their history, Esther would have been fine with that because she knew that eventually, doesn't know when, but eventually, the people would have been given their freedom. They always were. It was a process. So she would have been perfectly fine if her people were sold into slavery. But this act wasn't that. This act was to remove them from the map forever. 
Same thing a lot of people have been trying to do. That she couldn't hold her tongue. She could not keep silent. And I love that. And she like basically goes on like the irreparable damage that the king and the empire would suffer from this as a whole would have been impossible to come back from. Right? Remember, there were 10,000 talents to be given into the king's treasury. But even that wouldn't repair from the loss of damage of income from half your population. Because the Jews did add up in population. So many people providing services would have been lost. The king would have lost more than 10,000. So we, once again, we get to see Esther's courage to speak out against wrongdoing. Moving on, we will get to see how the king reacts to this request that she has made. It says in verses 5 through 6, so the king, so King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. First thing we see is a uh, see in the king's response is that he asks questions. Who is he? Where is he? Who would dare presume to do such a thing in their heart? David Guzik said, Ahasuerus perhaps should have known that it was actually himself who authorized such a plan. He was the one who gave authorization to Haman to carry out this plot, though he did it in ignorance. Guys, remember when we talked about how the king tended to do something, or tended when doing something, to then later regret it. You know, examples given. First, Vashti is a prime example. Exiles her, goes to war, comes back, regrets it, wants to take her back, is convinced otherwise. Esther becomes queen. This is the second time where he authorized, or gave Haman the ring and said just make like write whatever decree you want now he's going to be regretting it right I quoted this uh, when we talked about it Warren Wearsby said without asking any questions the king gave Haman the royal signet ring which granted him the authority to act in the king's name he could write any document he pleased and put the king's seal on it the document had to be accepted as law and obeyed. It was a foolish thing for a Hazarus to do, but true to character, he acted first and regretted it afterwards. Esther doesn't charge the king, though, because she knows that it wasn't, like, even though ultimately he was the one who authorized it down the line, she knows that Haman is the one who's make who's who's doing the crime. 
right? As we read in verse 6, and Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. Right? So she calls Haman the adversary and the enemy. In doing so, she's bringing to light the fact that Haman is not this faithful servant that he claims to be. We already know, and we have known since Haman was introduced, that he's evil, and that he never intended to put the empire first, or the interests of the king, or the interests of anybody first, besides his own. Haman had one goal. He wanted authority, he wanted honor, he wanted power, he wanted wealth, and really anything that would raise his status, and he'd do it at any cost. You know, how did Haman put it for the king when he wanted to send this decree? Esther 3, 8 through 9 says, Then Haman said to the king, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have, who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. Haman did all that he did for the one thing, and that is raising himself up. Now it has come to bite him in the butt. <laughs> right? Isaiah fifty four seventeen says, No weapon formed against me or against you shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and the righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Now, I guess Haman didn't get that memo, right? Because that's exactly what he tried to do. He was like, oh, like he probably didn't even know that that was written down anywhere where or ever said. But he was like, you know what? People have tried and failed over and over again to defeat the Israelites and the Jews. Huh, maybe I can try. I, I think I'll succeed. I will succeed where they failed. It's basically what everybody has said when they attack the Jews. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to succeed where they failed. Okay. Sure. Right? So, he was terrified before the king and the queen, and rightly so. He was accused rightly of plotting the murder of the Jews, which means he was accused rightly of plotting the queen's murder. That would make the king uh, really upset. Uh, so he was terrified for very good reason. Right? The wisdom shown by Esther to not only invite the king, but also Haman, is seen here. By inviting them both, the impact was bigger because Haman didn't know Esther was a Jew. He didn't know that he was conspiring to kill the queen. 
Haman would not have been able to hide his defeat. And yes, he was defeated right there. Right. And moving on to the last point this morning. Wow, I'm going really fast again. Wow, I need to learn to slow down a bit. <laughs> going to sip some coffee. Yep, I know. I'm awkward. It's great. Anyways, uh, verses 7 through 10 say, The king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined him by the king, against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. The king, then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman built for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. So the king arose in wrath. The king was rightfully upset. He had just found out that his queen was sentenced to death and he couldn't do anything to... Like, he knew the laws. He knew he couldn't reverse this decree. So he was rightfully upset, angry. Right? If you just found out everything that had just gone over, how would you react? Right? Like, if you just found out, if you were the in, <coughs> in the king's position, and you just found out everything probably wouldn't react like like oh my like I would have been like hey kill that guy like right now I'm not gonna go out and think like just kill him right now right I, I would be mad right would you keep your cool would you take the time compose yourself go on a walk clear your head you had all this power And you're like, ah, no, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna think this one through. That's not what I would have done, right? And I just love how it's once again we see that the king is doing something that is not in his nature, right? He could he could have been just like when he done exactly what he did when he va vanished and not vanished, exiled Vashti, right? immediately mad in anger vanish her like or not mad I why do I keep saying vanish banish her or exile her dispose of her that didn't happen so it seems that he's learning from his mistakes he isn't acting rashly at all here he decides to take a walk and process the information he just received. 
You know, and while the king is clearing his head, Haman decides to take this opportunity to beg for his life, for he sees what is about to happen. He realizes that the only way that his life will be spared is for Esther to say something on his behalf for the king. And I feel like that's a really, that's a long shot. That's like, come on, Esther just worked up this entire plan of, you know, fasting, entering the king's court unannounced, two banquets just to say, hey, my people are put to, are going to be killed and it's all because of this man. And he's like, you know what, if I beg, I feel like she'll, she'll change her mind. I'm going to, I'm going to get her to change her mind and my life's going to be saved. That's like, he's so stupid. Like I, so falling upon him and I just love at the very moment he's falling upon her begging for his life the king comes back cleared his head he's like oh I'm gonna think this rashly I'm gonna be great comes back and it looks like he's that Haman is attacking the queen so he gets mad again (laughs) like right he didn't interpret what Haman was doing as begging. He interpreted it as attacking the king, uh, attacking the queen, trying to take her life, whatever uh, goes along with that. And he gets mad again, right? That's just hilarious. Clears his head. Oh, I'm good. This is good. Okay, I'm gonna think this one good. Nope. There he, there he is. Nope. He's attacking my queen. Right? This isn't ha- something Haman will be able to get out of. You know, Psalms 94, Psalm 94, 23 says, He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. And Psalm 7, 16 says, His, mis- his well, mischief, mischief, there we go, that's how you pronounce it, returns upon his own head and his own skull, his violence descends. Haman committed a great crime against God's people. God doesn't let stuff like that slide. And doesn't let yeah, he doesn't let stuff like that slide. And as the king said, will you al- will he also assault the queen while I am at my, while I am in the house? Haman's face was uncovered, symbolizing that he was to be prepared for death, for execution. We now come to one of my favorite parts of this book, Haman's Execution. It's a pretty great, great time. Uh, Not for him. Definitely not for him. (laughs) For the Jewish people, it's pretty great. Uh, It says in verses 9 through 10, Now Harbona... One of the king's eunuchs said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai. Yeah. Who spoke good on the king's behalf is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. Then, then So they hanged Haman on the gallows that had been prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. So I know y'all aren't here to answer my questions. 
But how many of you guys remember uh, chapter 5 when we discussed gallows and what they actually were? You guys also who are here, yeah? Yeah, it was a good time. <laughs> not really. It's very painful to discuss. So I'm not going to discuss that one again. Um, I was going to quote it again, but I think one time is, is good. Uh, so remember that it wasn't actually this wooden stand with a collapsible floor that you had a noose around your neck. The floor goes out, you are hanged by a rope. Uh, nope, def definitely not that. Just a stake in the ground that you get impaled on. Fun. Right? So I love the irony here, though. Right? Do you guys see it? That at the end of chapter 5, Haman is convinced by his wife and his friends to build a gallows to kill Mordecai. And then he's like, and they're like, oh, now go to the king the next morning and say as like a sign of whatever, like kill Mordecai on this thing that I just built. He shows up to the palace and the king's like, hey, what should I do to the, like, to the man who I, who I delight to honor? Haman's just like, oh yeah, that's going to be me. I got this. Okay, you're going to do all this elaborate stuff. You know, horse that you've ridden, like a robe somebody that uh, you've worn, somebody walking in front of them, like this is the man that like King Delights to honor. Right? Then the king's like, great. Take that. Go do it to Mordecai. And then, and now we get to see that the very gallows that he built for Mordecai, he is now being put to death on. He built his own, like, his own, he basically built his own death. <laughs> I think that's hilarious that he, he took this whole time, he had his own plan, Esther had her plan, and they did not overlap in ways that he had hoped. Um, Right? And remember, as we read literally just a few minutes ago, in, S er, in Psalm 7, 16, I'd like to read the two verses prior as well. It says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and his own skull, his violence descends. He dug a pit. He fell into it. The in now, this instrument that was meant to symbolize victory over Mordecai now means defeat for him. Right? Just like how Satan thought the cross was going to vict mean victory for him, and it ended up being defeat. Right? Haman didn't realize that he was building his own death trap. That he was he was he wasn't gonna make it past this night. Now the death of Haman satisfied the king, and the king's wrath subsided. David Guzik said the death of a substitute satisfied the wrath of the king. 
in the in this in the case of Mordecai and Haman, it was the guilty dying in place of the innocent. In the case of Jesus and us, it was a matter of the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. There is such a time for defeat. The enemy's defeat is our victory. The next thing that needs to be done here is to figure out how to save the Jews. How to overturn a decree. But we won't be able to figure that one out until next week. Right? So there's something for you guys to look forward to. Yeah, that was great. So in conclusion, Esther makes her request. The act was to remove the Jews forever and she could not hold her tongue. Esther showed great courage asking to save her people from annihilation. We also saw the adver adversary revealed. The wisdom that Esther showed not only to invite the king but Haman as well was seen. Haman was defeated And he couldn't hide that defeat. Then Haman met his end. The instrument that symbolized his victory, it was supposed to symbolize victory, symbolized defeat. The defeat, defeat equals victory for us. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, Lord. Pray that we we take this lesson that we've learned and and be diligent to apply it to our lives. Our enemy is defeated. We have victory. Help us to help remind us of that fact daily, Lord that we may be able to make this impact on your kingdom, go out to change lives. Lord, I pray this all in your name. Amen. And uh, I'll close with this. Remember to stay fresh. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say it right. I know. Was that still on recording?